Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Well, hello there, and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. Uh, my name is Tiffany, and I am the CEO of the organization, also a person living with AI arthritis diseases. Primary is non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, but you know, like most, there's others floating around there. And I am not alone. I am here with uh, my co-host, Deb Constein. Hi, Deb. Hey, everybody. How are you? I am doing much better. I'm the <laughs> one that made us late. My my computer was not cooperating. I apologize. <laughs> well, you know, we we roll we we were in a roll with that. That's that's fine. So, Deb, tell everyone a little bit about yourself because you're also a person living with these diseases. Yes, I was diagnosed with RA at the young age of 13. And I have many comorbidities that go along with that. I've had multiple surgeries. I'm just finishing recovering from reconstructive left foot surgery, which was at the end of November. And um, yeah, up and moving. And then as soon as I got my freedom back, I got shut back down with COVID. So <laughs> hunkering down again. Boy. <laughs> we we get we get that. Well, well, yes. thanks Deb for um from co-hosting. We uh, for those new to the show, we have many different co-hosts from around the world because we want to make sure we have many experiences and perspectives always at the table and they are these episodes are always led by the patient voice. And we invite other stakeholders to the table to speak with us as we have today. So I'd also like to welcome Dr. Lisa Zicker. She is from Washington University School of Medicine, a rheumatologist and clinical educator who devotes half of her time to caring for patients with autoimmune rheumatic diseases and half to educating physicians in training. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here today to speak with you guys about one of my favorite topics, actually, telemedicine and e-health. Oh. So I can't I can't wait to get going. My engines are revving. Get it? Oh, oh she's so, so good. Oh, she's on point. Oh, wow. And for those of you, if you're listening, if you're listening and and you're not seeing this, she she has come equipped with a little race car. Yeah, I have to show you. Can I can I brag a little yeah. bit? So, yes. you know, with COVID and the mail not working so well, like Amazon Prime is just kind of Amazon. It's not so much Prime anymore. Um, right. I didn't have anything car themed. So I bought a Matchbox car and then some hot glue, oh. some pens, and we'll just put that in my pocket. So now I'm in car. I love it. That wow. is awesome. She's innovative. <laughs> she, she's, she's innovative. She's a doctor. She she's beautiful. If you could see oh, her, wow, she's just the whole package. 
but hot glue, it holds everything together. That's amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) So Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So as you already mentioned, I'm a rheumatologist. I work at Washington University in St. Louis. I treat patients with all different types of autoimmune diseases, arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, the gamut, everybody. And so if you ever come see me in clinic, I do devote half of my time to education. So you'll probably not just see me, you'll see some baby doctors, like some medical students and some (laughs) residents and some fellows. I've always got somebody with me. And what is so interesting about today's topic is that I have a little bit of an interest in trying to decipher the key skills involved in effectively performing or engaging in virtual care, and then honing that down into a way that effectively teaches training physicians and already practicing practitioners how to communicate with patients. And, you know, I'm really excited to hear the patient side of things because I only know the story from this side of the screen. So today today is going to be a a really educational, I think, and fun conversation. Great. Well, you know, that is a great setup for reintroducing to our audience what the show is all about. And it is based on our mission as people living with AI arthritis diseases to help others like ourselves have a voice as an equal with other stakeholders around the table. So we like to say these episodes are at the table. And and then we have conversations so that we can hear both sides and then together work on potential solutions that will improve education, advocacy, and research. And in this case, (laughs) e-health. So, woo. Okay. Awesome. So, um this is uh, this is actually a continuation show. So sometimes we do this, we build, well not sometimes, all the time. We initially throw a topic we say on the table as a first show and then we build on it. So we'll continue to build on this show as well. So we'll the conversation we have learning from the rheumatologist perspective and then the patient perspective, we'll put the conversation back to the community of all stakeholders to give input, and then we'll continue to develop some solutions. Now, we started with Deb and I a couple, yeah. it seems like forever ago, but it was it a couple days ago. And we talked about the importance of conferences and our attendance in conferences. So you can go back and, and look at that. And we introduced eHealth because we were at ULAR in 2019. And we went to the panel, the session on eHealth because as an organization, we are international and we know that it is there are a lot of barriers to participation and having a voice if you live with these diseases. So we set up our organization to ensure that as many voices as possible could be heard. And we do that a lot through e-communications. And, and, and so we wanted to hear how if we're helping improve patients and get them better access to care, what's happening on the e-health side of it from the rheumatology so we could translate that and tell patients what's happening. Well, then it st- COVID-19 happened. <laughs> all of a sudden now we all have to use e-health. There, there's no choice. And yesterday we had Orly on and she is a rheumatology researcher from France and she was on that panel for e-health. So we did talk a little bit about the future development of apps and some other e-health methodologies. And then today we get to talk to the rheumatologist and find out what's happening in these offices. So let's start with Deb. Deb, I know you've had some experiences here since 
COVID-19 happened. And why don't you share some of your, some of your experiences that you've had? Sure. So I alluded to the surgery that I talked about, and I still had follow-up appointments to do with my foot surgeon. And with COVID and not going into healthcare settings, I've had to kind of put on hold some of my last x-rays for my foot to see if some of the actual joints have actually fused together. And there's one piece that we've been watching and I had, you know, I was scheduled to have the x-ray done and we talked about, you know, I mean, we, I, I had an e-health appointment with her. So we talked on the phone and she said, you know, I've got standing orders. So if you're in a healthcare setting, have it done, but I don't want you to come in intentionally for that. So I've been actually on hold waiting. So I do have another appointment in June that hopefully it'll be safe to go out to, you know, have the x-ray done. But there is a point. So if this was my foot, they took all the joints out of here. They took the heads and the, you know, everything off of this part here. And they fixed a bunion and they fused with plates and screws. And there was one piece in particular that she said, there's a, there's a point that I think that we're, we're going to win this one, but I need to keep an eye on x-rays to see how we're doing is seeing if it's actually fusing, because if not, then the, you know, the, the plates and the screws could fail, which means they'd break and then they'd have to go back in to fix it again. So I'm really hoping that's not the case. I've been, you know, obviously kind of I'm I'm walking I'm walking with a normal gait as much as I can but I'm trying to be really careful with it. The other piece with my rheumatologist that I had a follow-up appointment with was I started Humira prior to the surgery and it was the second time around with Humira. I had actually good luck with it the first time. So this is my second time on it, but I also had a break with the surgery and then went back on Humira and you know, flared like crazy because again, I was using a knee scooter and all kinds of stuff with my hands and wrists and um, hips and everything was just not happy because of, you know, all the different obstacles I was using, you know, with trying to navigate around the house. So we've been talking about potentially changing therapies, but with the therapy changing, She, I mean, she offers complete shared decision-making. She offers different options and she knows that I understand. And I I mean, I've had this disease since I was 13. So 37 years of having it and lots of different medications in the meantime. One thing we talked about was, and it was kind of a perchance that this even came up. I'm not even sure why I talked about it, but past medications, one of them was Actemera. And I was on Actemera for a short amount of time and my lipids skyrocketed and I was already on a statin medication. So versus messing with the statin medication, I chose that. uh, That scared me, you know, having heart attack and all that other kind of stuff. I'm just like, I don't want to, you know, mess with my lipids. So I went off the medication, but she said now with learning more about Actemera, typically what she said happens is after six months, your lipids will come back down. And I don't see you nodding, doctor. (laughs) 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 
I'm or so you're wondering. looking for some reassurance. Yeah, I was looking for some feedback on that on that <laughs> that comment. But um, anyways, so she said, okay, so what do you want to do? Do you want to stay on Humira and stay where you are? We can add sulfasalazine back in, even though it, we know it hasn't done a lot for you in the past, but it might tweak things along a little bit. Or do you want to go and try Actemera? And I said, you know, at this point, with not being able to do follow up with, you know, labs right away and get baselines and, you know, follow up with getting back on Actemera, I chose to stay on the Humera, add the sulfasalazine back and, you know, just kind of write things out. But the other thing that's happened in the meantime is that I developed an abscess. So I'm back, I'm off my methotrexate and my Humira right now for the last month. So I'm not doing wonderful, but I'm on double antibiotics trying to still finish treating that. So it's it's just been interesting how everything has been snowballing during this time. Again, you know, lack of x-rays for the foot and um, the option of changing two medications and having the decision to, you know, ride it out. So, you know, I hear I still sit on Humira, but not on Humira currently because (laughs) abscess that it showed up in the meantime. So everything just gets a little bit more complicated when you have diseases like ours. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Deb. And I'm going to jump right over and get the doctor's opinion here. (laughs) So it seems that Deb, you have really had challenges with imaging and blood work. Mm -hmm. And, and that is, that is contributing to a delay in altering your treatments. Is that correct? That's what I would say. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Um, So how, how would you, Lisa, how would you say that doctors or rheumatology offices are handling situations like Deb. Sure. Yeah. So first of all, Deb, I'm so sorry. You've had all of this happen to you in the last <laughs> few months. You've been, you've been put through the ringer for sure. But as we transition to telemedicine and we're cognizant of social distancing and patients on immunosuppression, you know, wanting to stay definitely away from all the COVID cooties out in, in public. <laughs> yes. That definitely does pose some challenges from the medical side and what it means in terms of getting labs and imaging. I would say, so my personal practice is if something is necessary, we do it. Everything is a risk benefit analysis. So if something is definitely necessary, we find a way to make it happen in the safest way possible. So I personally have been relying a lot on independent diagnostic sites and laboratories because unlike the hospital settings, at least where I practice, unlike mine, I can't speak for other other places, but unlike at least my clinic's practice, we don't, they are offering the ability to make reservations. So you can actually Uh, schedule an appointment to go in and get your x-ray or your labs tested. And several of them, if you tell them you're on immunosuppression, they'll actually give you an appointment in the first hour of their office hours of them being open, which is great because they have just like, yeah. they've just done the deep cleaning all, mm-hmm. all overnight and no one's touched anything. And so you go in there with your mask and your gloves on, and that is probably the safest place for you to get your blood drawn. The other nice thing that they're offering is if you do call and you make 
an appointment reservation, you can check in online and then wait in your car and they will text you when it's your turn. So you don't have to sit in that waiting room with other people sharing recycled air. <laughs> that's actually, yeah, that's actually really interesting. Um, you know, none of that has been offered here in Wisconsin. I'm in Wisconsin, so the Madison, Wisconsin area, and they're the bigger hospitals that are doing all these different things. Yeah. And it's, they, they aren't offering the independent laboratories and things like that. And that's actually, you know, really good options for, you know, people that are immunosuppressed. So yeah. And then the other option I've been using for patients who are very sick and they really, they should definitely not be going out is either home health or a mobile lab. So there are in in the St. Louis area, there are a couple of companies that we can contract with if insurance so if their patient's insurance supports, someone will go to the patient's house, draw the labs, and then the patient doesn't have to leave their door. Yeah. And I actually have very good insurance through my husband. And yeah, interesting concepts. Those are really interesting. One question I actually have for you are the type of telehealth appointments you are having, are they by phone or are they like on computer? Yeah. So I do a combination of the two and most of it is dictated. Well, first of all, so I go through my schedule a week in advance and I I pick the patients that I know need to be seen in clinic. Like I can't make decisions without Mm -hmm. putting my hands and doing a physical exam on their joints. So those patients, we apologize. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to come in. Otherwise, we're just going to be delaying care. I don't think I can accomplish what I can through telemedicine. And, you know, now... All the clinics, they have been given a list of things that they have to follow by the CDC to really prevent the spread of COVID. And for those patients, we're doing everything we can to minimize risk. So that's number one. Then for those that remain that I think would be eligible for telehealth, I personally prefer the video. I prefer the video if at all possible, because you know, you can at least show me your hands. I can see things. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel also like that visual nonverbal communication, it adds to, I'm going to call it, so I love this term. It's called website manner instead of bedside manner. (laughs) I love that. Do you, do you do a, like a little comedy act that we don't know about on the side? I do not. And I didn't make that up. So I can't, I stole that. Okay. (laughs) I love it. But that is perfect. Isn't that cute? But I, yes. I I think that the nonverbal communication really adds to the website manner. And I think it makes how we communicate just more personal and more effective. So then if a patient just cannot, like if they're just too scared, they're just not technologically savvy enough, then we will do a, a telephone call. But those are pretty rare. There's a lot of apps now that make it very easy one in particular, I send a text message, there's a link, the patient clicks on it, and then it uses the camera on their phone and we can actually, they like don't need to set anything up. It's great. So there's very few reasons why we can't do a video visit. Yeah, that's awesome. The appointments I actually had were right after everything kind of shut down. So I think they were just still trying to feel things out. So they were both phone calls. But you know, as things are moving on. I was telling Tiffany, I think yesterday that even on our my chart, we've got those, the platforms that are used. There are video chats for urgent care that are available now and all kinds of photos that you can send and things like that, that are 
be, like popping up week by week. I mean, our, the platform is changing week by week. So it's interesting how much is actually happening. So I, I think if my appointments maybe were a little bit later, I, I'm guessing they probably would have been probably video chats or something like that. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I, it's just unfortunate timing in yeah. the wave of everything that you were caught up with because I was in the same boat of having to really rely on the telephone, mm-hmm. especially mid-March, early April. And then as technology has advanced with all of this, you know, options, as you've just described, are becoming available. And so those patients that, you know, we did telephone visits when all this started, I see in my own patients what you're experiencing and that there's a little bit of a delay because things were just put on pause. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I fell into that bucket, sadly. And, you know, things have kind of compounded in the meantime, (laughs) but, you know, it's fine. You know, I'm doing, I'm. I've got my husband and my 21-year-old, my millennial here at home that uh, is, you know, they're the ones running out and doing anything that needs to happen. So good. That's good. That's a good side of that. I have to say though, that's the classic mark of a rheumatoid arthritis patient. I am in terrible pain. I can't move any of my joints, but I'm fine. It's okay. I got it. (laughs) We're going to make it through. You know, you get used to it. You really do. You know, you get used to a certain level of discomfort. I've been, you know, super fatigued being on double antibiotics because I've had MRSA before. So they were trying to cover a huge broad spectrum with the abscess. And these antibiotics are knocking me for a loop. And I've been doing a lot of nothing. My husband's like, you just need to get outside, get some vitamin D. And I'm like, that's not it. I'm like, "Uh, yeah, okay, okay, honey. Okay. You know, (laughs) Well, I wanted I wanted to ask as we're talking about these appointments and some patients need to come in, some patients, you know, we're we're doing the telehealth. Dr. Zicker, have you seen any kind of decline in patients uh, maybe not keeping their appointments or or just is there a difference I guess in the clinical care that you're observing based on the new way of having to meet? So at the very beginning, people were canceling because they just didn't want to come in. And so once those appointments were canceled, they rescheduled and things just kind of got delayed. Now that we have all these options, I might have one no-show. Like I keep calling and I call and I call and I call and they're just not picking up. I would say actually the biggest challenge is the eight o'clock and the 820 appointment. They don't answer. And I actually end up calling them and waking them up out of bed. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> That's always fun. (laughs) I'm the wake up call. I'm like the concierge at the hotel. But other than that, other than having to drag people out of bed, I haven't seen a tapering of of people and wanting to come. If anything, they like it better. It's so much more convenient. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. your phone or you have your computer and they don't have to leave their house. They don't have to worry about timing and driving and parking and all that other stuff that comes along with an appointment. Well, that's really good to hear. And I, it seems like in, a, in the patient community, at first, when suddenly the telehealth, the e-health was thrust upon us with the whole COVID-19, I, I think that from what I had observed, there was some difficulty getting those appointments to see. because, And I think that's just true of just life. Things were very chaotic. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and I do think, and Deb, correct me if I'm wrong. I do feel like patients are getting more accustomed to the e-health. I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. 
I think that had I had appointments that would have been a little bit later, I think they would have been more video type appointments versus the phone because it was just, I think, timing and things hadn't quite snapped that quickly into the video chats and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. um, I agree with that. But sadly, you know, you still feel like you're like falling into that little realm of it's like, okay, so do I do I or don't I in different um, situations? So you mean do I or or don't I get the go into the doctor's office or, you know, that kind of thing or go get those x-rays. And I ended up having to be seen because of the abscess because I had been doing the photos through the, uh, my charts. And they're like, okay, so now we're at a point where I think you need to be seen because this is a little bit more serious. We don't, I mean, we don't want to lose track of you being a RA patient and infections and I don't play well together. So, you know, it's just very typical how that goes. And I, in, I had been trying to avoid that and it, we were, missing like I was trying to send messages to my doctor with these appoint with these pictures and then the nurses would get them and they gave me a cream and the cream like ended up taking off five layers of skin and I was like yep I'm raw so I'm stopping that so I immediately went back to the my chart and sent them a note and said, I'm not taking the the, uh, cream anymore because I don't think it's working correctly for me. (laughs) So I did that first thing in the morning on a Friday, hoping that I could catch somebody or get the doctor to answer me back. Well, the nurse answered me at like after five o'clock on Friday and said, we'll send that on to your doctor. And the doctor never got back to me over the weekend. So then by Monday, it had already ruptured and it was it was not in good shape. <laughs> so I felt like I was like, oh, man, you know, I missed my window if they would have read the note. But but then I ended up having to go in on Monday because they're like, yeah, you're not in good shape right now. So it was interesting. Wow. I'm, I just, all I can say is I'm sorry. I mean, no, <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's just the nature of the beast as far as how that goes. Yeah. So I wanted to get into a little bit from this, the doctor and the patient viewpoint. We talked a little bit about what's working, right? And a little bit about what's not working. We, we said that some patients it is preferable because we, well, you can stay in bed until the doctor calls you. That's one. <laughs> <laughs> There's, Get a wake there's, up call. there's a benefit never thought of before, but not having to travel. And mm-hmm. there, there are some, and, and as something that Deb and I had learned back in the conference we attended about e-health and the benefits is that people who have to travel hours to see a mm-hmm. rheumatologist and you're able, there's access to those in a rural community. So that's definitely a benefit. Why don't you tell us, Dr. Zicker, what are some of the benefits from the rheumatologist perspective? Well, so selfishly doing video visits also keeps me safe and keeps me out of the line of COVID. I'm so grateful to all of the emergency room physicians and the intensivists and the hospitalists who are treating patients with COVID or symptoms concerning for it. But you know, doctors are, we're, we're human too, and we can get the disease just like our patients can. So from a selfish perspective, this at least keeps me safe and my family safe as well. So in addition to that, though, I think 
So you mentioned improving access to rheumatology services, and in particular, you mentioned improving access for people who live in rural areas. I would Mm -hmm. expand that to patients who are underserved in urban settings, who take three buses and a train to get to their doctor's office. And even though geographically they may live, you know, shorter distance, they don't have the transportation and are very reliant on public transportation to get to where they need to go. So this improves access in those settings as well. Have you come across any patients that don't have phones or don't have the technology or are lacking in the way to be able to connect with even a cell phone? So um, pretty much everybody has a smartphone. The issue for underserved patients is whether or not they have the connection and the Wi-Fi. So a lot of patients in that scenario, you know, they'll use free Wi-Fi at McDonald's. So instead, we're you know, a suggestion might be, well, you know, if you have a car, then maybe you can park outside the McDonald's and chat, you know, connect to their free Wi-Fi and we can talk that way, still in a private setting. So that's one barrier. I would say the other barrier that I probably encounter more so would be the population of patients who didn't grow up with technology and they are just terrified. They are so um. scared. So I had, an, I had a patient this week, actually, and it was our first time meeting. And she, I sent her the text and I'm waiting like five minutes and nothing's happening. She's not logging in. So I call her on the phone. I'm like, hey, how's it going? She's freaking out. She's like, my granddaughter's not here. I have no one to help me get on. I'm like, it's okay. I'll walk you through it. So you see the text. Yeah, I see the text. Okay, can you open the text? Okay, I can open the text. Do you see the link? Well, what's a link? Okay, do you see like the letters that don't mean anything with a line? Yeah, I see that. Push on that. And I walked her through step by step and she did fine. She did great. In the end, she did. She just needed a little bit of guidance. And the visit was wonderful because we accomplished everything that we would have been able that we needed to but that first visit that first time of having to interact with the technology to actually get to the point where you can engage with your physician i find that that's the biggest hurdle and once yep. patients are over that they're good but getting to that point needs some hand holding the other thing with that that i found very interesting is i had just i've only had a couple doctors appointments since this has all started but both of them had different methods of logging in one doctor oh. uh one was essentially like through a zoom through zoom or something similar and then the other one was sending a link to an app on my phone and i had to download the app and then they called me at a certain time and i clicked on a link but so the point is there's there i've only had two and they were both different <laughs> both different methods. And, and I, I, I definitely think that if we're thinking of barriers, that's gotta be one of the hugest barriers is even if you can overcome it the first time, there's always that chance that the second doctor's appointment will will be a different or the third or the fourth or the third. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's, there's certainly no continuity because this is all, everybody's kind of scrambling and, and figuring out the, the best, the best way to do this. Absolutely. I am curious as far as what's working, you know, I think we'll probably keep doing this e-health after, after the fact. I mean, there are, there are some benefits that come to this. Um, Dr. Zicker, what would you say you would like to see stay like frequency or, you know, methods, anything, your thoughts? That's a good question. 
Well, I, the, the one, the, the key ingredient, I think, is the ability for me to be able to go through my, my patient list and pick who is going to, which patients would actually get benefit from having a telemedicine visit. And I, I, I need to maintain, I'm going to actually use we, we patients and physicians need to maintain that flexibility. As soon as we lose that, I think that that's when the telemedicine will start to fall apart. There have been some studies and the opinion of one rheumatologist, I think he's out of Yale, who he he was doing telerheumatology well before COVID. And he described, I'm really sorry, I'm blanking on his name right now. If he's listening, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but he described this hybrid system of mixing in face-to-face and virtual visits as the perfect cocktail for health and, con- and you know, maintaining disease activity and being able to do all the things that we need to do. And I agree with him. I think it's that combination. I cannot, I can't imagine a scenario, especially in rheumatology, which as you girls know, you know, the diseases, they wax and they wane, they flare and they remit. And you never know, it's like riding a roller coaster. You never know what the day is going to bring. Mm-hmm. And so I cannot, I, I can't imagine riding that roller coaster only on Zoom. <laughs> I think, I th- I think you know, that combination of having face-to-face and virtual visits is, is the only thing that's going to make the recipe continue to work. Right. And I always do this. See, I write lots of notes oh, hey. and I have, I actually have A, B, C. I, I, I'm a focus group moderator too. So that, I think yeah. that, that's where this, this, this is coming in. So you said one of the things that you said when you first when we first did the introductions is that you're very passionate about improving communication between physicians and, and patients, and in particular, also educating the physicians to be (laughs) in, in how to do, how to do this. And obviously the new physicians too, this is going to become something that is ingrained in how they practice, right? I mean, it'll be a difference between it's happening right when you get out of school versus you all are sort of adjusting. But anytime there's an adjustment period in communication, it's going to take all sides to really understand what works well for one person might not work well for the other. And we already have the challenges in face-to-face communication that that we're working on with Dr. Kim in a, in a shameless plug called Rooney Rounds. <laughs> <laughs> so I check love that it. out. Um, no, but... But, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned was just going through a list and and trying to sort of choose which patients might be better candidates for e-health. And I'm just thinking from a patient point of view, I would like to be part of that shared decision making because I wouldn't want a doctor to assume on paper you know, that I might be a better candidate. It might be something that causes me severe anxiety, severe stress, you know, just because I might have access to internet or a phone. So what are your thoughts? And this was not on our script. This was not on our pre-notes. This is just literally um, how conversations work, right? And what are your thoughts about how to address that? And Deb, weigh in as well as a patient Mm -hmm. point of view, as we're starting to create this Who's going to continue with e-health? Who's not? And maybe we can start with Dr. Zicker. Mm-hmm. How how do you feel? Uh, what are your thoughts about including the patient in that decision making? So I, I'm really grateful that you brought this up. I hope I wasn't at all coming across paternalistic and saying like I decide that's the end. Oh no 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 not <laughs> oh, at all. No, no, I, no, just, no you didn't. <laughs> no you didn't. It just spurred 
the because we do a lot in shared decision making at our organization, so it's mm-hmm. always top of mind. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's a perfect segue to to raise this issue. So the ultimate decision always lies with the patient. So, you know, when I go through my schedule, that's my suggestion. My assistant then contacts all the patients, offers if if willing, the patient, and and I think that they're a good candidate. And if if the patient is willing, then we transition to a phone call or a video visit. But the ultimate decision always lies with the patient. And so if the Mm -hmm. patient really wants to come in, we make that happen. Or if they're really uncomfortable using the video, then we do a telephone call. So I agree that the patient definitely needs to have a say in that. I'm interested to hear if on your side, if you would want to be part of that conversation sooner, as opposed to just receiving a phone call and asking what your preference is. Logistically, I'm not sure how that would necessarily take place, but you know, we can brainstorm Oh, she's a natural for the show. I tell you right now, because that's exactly what we that's the whole purpose of the show and why we don't do interview style. Because Mm -hmm. exactly what and and interestingly enough, when I wrote the initial outline for the show and I approached Dr. Kim and and for those of you who have seen the show, Dr. Al Kim has a recurring role on our (laughs) our show and and Dr. Zicker works with Dr. Kim and he introduced us. So so we got to give shout out to him for for connecting us. Thanks, Al. Yeah, Yeah. thanks. (laughs) So so one of the things that I, I had said was we're going to have to have an evolution now into incorporating e-health more so than previously COVID. And, and as we're going through this transition, what we predict will start to happen is whether it's rheumatology or any other doctor's office, they have standard operating procedures you need to, to come up with. And we sort of think that will probably happen is the processes will involve what the office staff thinks is best and it'll come after the fact that patients might be asked. And I think to answer your question, yes, I would think that patients would really like to be involved in it before because what we've learned in just thinking of patient involvement in research in general is now there's been what since 2010 in the United States, but before that in Europe and Canada, um, all the way since the 90s, researchers have recognized the need to have the patient voice early on because they end up backtracking to figure out what the best outcomes would be. So I think we've proven that need. And and then the question is, as you said, how do we do that? How do we get the patient voice? One thought I have is when the scheduler calls the patient to schedule their appointment, maybe offering them the choice then is only a thought that's coming to mind. Because I'm, I'm thinking that if I was offered the choice and if I have all this stuff going on and I felt safe to go into the doctor's office, I probably would right now for sure because I've got a lot going on. But if the choice was given to me down the road, I think that it might be a quick video conference on the phone or on my phone or whatever. I think that would work just fine for me. Or I'm wondering, too, if it's something I know, again, I go to Washington University. I, that's what, uh, Dr. Kim is my doctor. And one of the things, we have a portal and I get notifications all the time, like this is new in your portal. And for those in most places, whether it's a hospital, a clinic, a urgent care, have these portals now set up. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just thinking maybe a, a thought would be just to have an email or a notification sent out and say, hey, while we're going to be developing this next phase of e-health, what would your preference be 
under this situation? Just to, like a pre-survey, like a survey, I guess, if, if you would. Yeah, because actually I get surveys that come through my portal and I might not get a notification, but when I log in the next time, it'll be in my inbox, you know, like different surveys to finish. I know that I, I have different surveys for different things that I do. And that actually would be a, I mean, might be a good way to actually accomplish that. I think one, one, so timing wise, I think what would work is if, if such a survey were sent maybe a week or so before the appointment, because things change. So exactly. I was just thinking that if when you're scheduling your appointment for three months, six months from now, like who knows what's going to happen in that? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like Deb was saying, (laughs) perfect example. She might say not, you know, Four months ago, she would have said, oh, I'm totally down with eat, with with doing a call. And yeah. then all of this happens. And she's like, yeah. get me in. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> needs to put eyes on me. <laughs> so maybe close. So you set your appointment time, whatever. It defaults to a face-to-face. And then maybe closer to the time of the appointment, you can be issued a survey. And then you can decide. I will say that from the doctor's perspective, it's very difficult to switch between doing face-to-face and then video, face-to-face and then video. During a day, you're probably saying. Yes, yeah. during a day. So it's easier if things are, if patients are blocked. So like, this is my morning, I'm going to see all face-to-face visits. This is my afternoon, I'm going to see all video visits. So just having some flexibility if you're going to convert to a video visit in terms of timing and during the day is is helpful from to at least keep us on schedule. <laughs> and if we're on schedule, you're on schedule. That's yeah. a that's a really good point. And, and it was one of the other questions that I was just curious about in regards to the scheduling. Are you still seeing on average the same amount of patients a day? Or is yeah. it, ha- it's just, it just scheduled in blocks as if it were to be yep. in an office. Okay. I was, I was curious about that. The same question was going through my mind and I was going to ask, I was going to say, do you see more through telehealth than you do with face-to-face? Because I would think face-to-face, there's so many more moving parts that are happening. Uh, So I see about the same. I'm very fortunate where I work in that I have a great support staff. And so when pre-COVID, when I was in the clinic, I had an assistant with me. I always had like, you know, trainee. And so when we ran behind, I had somebody to pick up some of the administrative slack. That doesn't exist in telehealth. So that's true. And that administrative burden then falls only to me. So that slows me down. And that is probably what limits being able to see even more patients in a virtual setting than in a face-to-face. We'll see. Maybe it'll change with time. I don't know. That's true. We have one doctor in Milwaukee that we've been associated with, and he has been doing telehealth for probably four or five years. And he believes that no patient should have to wait more than, you know, three weeks to see a doctor. So he will schedule on the tack on to the end of his day, um, many more telehealth people that are looking to get first encounters. And he's been doing that for, he said it was actually really easy for him to transition to seeing most of his patients through telehealth. Do you have a preference what you prefer? Obviously you're probably like, you like to put hands on people and you know, maybe that's an easier, what is, what are your thoughts on that? I think part of the problem in answering this question is that telehealth and telemedicine and in its subspecialty, telerheumatology, 
was in its infancy before we were catapulted into it. And as a result, we were able to study from an academic point of view, some basic outcomes, but we never really got into the nitty gritty of how to perform telehealth. And that piece is missing. And so we're all me and I, I put myself in this category. We are all making it up on the fly mm-hmm. and probably some things that we are doing are right. And some things that we're doing are wrong. And we have no idea because we don't know which end is up right now. So this physician that you're mentioning, he had the practical experience to prepare him, whereas the rest of us were, were making it up as we go along. Yeah. And I personally, for me, I will always feel uncomfortable until I know what I'm doing is evidence-based. We all try, we practice evidence-based medicine and this is medicine. So why would we not be practicing evidence-based telemedicine as well? Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. And so until we can get to that point, I will always default to what I know is solid and that foundation will be face-to-face. However, having said that, you know, we've talked for about an hour on, on how telehealth and telemedicine can be effective. Mm -hmm. And I still believe that. But I, I do think that we have a long way to go. Absolutely. One of, one of the things I, I was curious about as well is new patients. Yeah. You know, hopefully, and, and again, where we have to say this is, this is happening, this conversation in May of 2020. So depending on when you're listening to it, this, we may have figured all of this out. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would imagine that the new patient, unless it's some kind of just meet and see how your symptoms are. What would that look like if you had to meet somebody for the first time via telehealth or online? It's harder. It's so much harder. You know, you don't have an established relationship with the, with the patient. So, you know, coming up with ways, there's, there's, I definitely engage in some idle chit chat just to kind of build some relationship before you start diving in because there's no preamble on a, on a video visit. There's no desk to check into the person to check your vitals, the form to fill out, right, you know, all this right. like preamble before the doctor actually walks into the office. So I think it's harder to build a relationship from that perspective, but not necessarily harder. You just have to be more cognizant and more focused in doing so. And then the other aspect, is, and this has actually been studied, and not just in rheumatology, but in other specialties, uh, general medicine, urgent care, et cetera, is that for brand new patients, the time to deciding on a diagnosis is actually longer than if those patients are seen face-to-face at the get-go. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, and that there's a lot, there's some controversy there. Some studies disagree, but some studies, it seems like that that might be a trend, especially in rheumatology, because Tiffany, as you, when you introduced yourself, you're like, you know, I have arthritis in my spine, but there's some other things there too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Kim was like, wow, you were a pleasure to have come across my desk. <laughs> I mean, he just, cause I mean, I had gone from rheumatoid arthritis and that, well, first undifferentiated disease, then rheumatoid arthritis, then maybe lupus, then maybe Sjogren's is there. Then now I've got also Bichette's is, is on my chart. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> you went to the buffet and you took one of every single offering. <laughs> um, but, can, but can you imagine trying to weed through that through a video screen? Like, it's just going to, it's difficult face to face, but it takes even longer to do that when you, yeah. it just, it takes longer. Yeah. I, I totally could see that for sure. I mean, that is hard because I know I've had the rapport with my rheumatologist for years and, you know, just bringing up 
a medication that I only was on for a short amount of time. I did well with it, though, during that time. I think that was what I triggered me to even mention it when we were talking. And um, she's like, well, we've actually learned a lot about that medication in the meantime. And I'm like, okay, had I known that, maybe I would have hung in there a little bit longer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I do want to just, as we're, we're rounding out the conversation, I want to just talk about some ways we've talked about a few, but ways that we can improve communication using e-health, especially when we have these added barriers to engagement. And I know before we, we got on online here, Dr. Zicker, you had some thoughts on that. I thought maybe you would want to share. I don't remember what I said. Oh, well, I, I gave you a little bullet. You said be prepared <laughs> oh, and understanding. Oh, yeah. So Does that work? Okay. That work. Thanks. Thanks for the prompt. <laughs> I am blonde. Um, <laughs> well, I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think what is a, co- a couple of things. The first is if this is your first time using whatever technology you're going to have to use to do your virtual visit, give it a trial run if possible. Make sure you know how to connect. Make sure you know how to position the camera. I can't, I did a, I did a photo, I did a video visit on Monday. All I saw was this patient from her eyes and her forehead. <laughs> and I saw all the, all the, all the imperfections of her ceiling. I mean, I got a tour of like the ceiling of her house. But she just did not know how to hold that camera. And there was nothing I could do to coach her out of that. And so practicing before you actually engage with your doctor is really important. Make sure you can be able to get a clear image of a rash or of a joint or whatever. The second is just like with a face-to-face appointment, come with your list of questions. Be prepared for your appointment as doctors, we prepare too for your appointment. And so it just, it makes things more efficient and runs smoothly if everybody's on the same page and has a a list of, uh, has an agenda to accomplish and make the most out of your time. And then, you know, if you are, if you're not technologically savvy, or you know that there's going to be a difficult part to examine, you may want to think about having a family member or or a close friend with you because they can often help get the best camera angle and they're an extra set of hands. So I kid you not, I I saw a brand new patient on telemedicine and thankfully her partner was there and she was having hand pain. And yeah, I could look, I could see if she had swelling in her hands, but there's nothing like doing the physical exam to really tell if there's inflammation in the hand joints. And so I coached her partner through it. I taught her how to do it and she did it for me. She was my hands during that appointment. And yeah, so many times. That's actually really, really cool. And I mean, for you to even think to do that is amazing. That that's really cool. Thanks. Well, so we're all just being creative through all of this, trying to come up with creative ways to accomplish what needs doing. But I can't tell you how many times since then that the family member has been the clutch one. They've been the MVP of of the visit because they can they can do something that I or the patient cannot. So those are some some suggestions. I like that because sometimes if you have somebody else there, like the patient won't necessarily always give you the right on answer to what you're asking, but then whoever's with you will be like, come on, you haven't been able to do that for six months. Oh my (laughs) gosh. My my dad's head is exploding right now. (laughs) (laughs) As he he and my mom are watching this together. He's probably like, I know. <laughs> yes, I'm telling you. He is. He probably said it right before I said he went, Jan, 
That's exactly what you do. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I see that in in life. It's I, I personally enjoy it when it's when it's a husband and a wife and one is ratting out the other and the other one kind of gives them the side eye. That's fun. It's always fun. Yeah. That's my mom giving them the side eye. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and your dad just letting it all fly. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. Uh, Deb, I was going to ask you if you had any recommendations for our patient community on things that, that you wanted to add to that as a patient perspective. I definitely agree with actually, if you go, I mean, whether you're in an e-health or even in a, like you go to a doctor appointment, I recommend sometimes what you're hearing, um, you've got two sets of ears there and you're listening together, capturing the information because sometimes the doctor will say something and in your own mind, you'll get stuck. And that's all you'll be playing in your head and you won't be hearing anything else that's actually been said in the meantime. So having other ears that are listening as well to help you capture what the doctor is reporting back to you. That's one thing in particular that I often think of, because if my husband can go with me, especially to some important ones right after surgeries and things like that, I'm like, hey, you don't have to sit there and watch them taking the pins out and doing all that kind of stuff. But actually, I really appreciate you being there just to listen because, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, right. I think that's that's one of the main main things that jumps to my mind right now. And I think I'll add to that in kind of a build on conversation that we've had before is I think now more than ever, it's really important for patients to chart their disease in real time. So mm -hmm. taking photos, taking notes, journaling, so that you do have the information prepared in case you will need to submit it online. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I just think that I just want to express that a little bit more. We've talked about it before. And I know at our organization, we have been speaking more about how we as people living with the diseases can help facilitate um, some recommendations for patients on tracking their care. And well, I just don't want people to forget that it yes, might even sure. be more important now to tell your story than ever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that because if questions are coming up with you, because I mean, I know the week before I'm actually going in for a, an appointment, questions are popping into my head that I have to have a pad of paper with me that I am jotting those down because I, I sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll be spinning on all that kind of stuff. And unless I've captured it on paper, I can't stop spinning. So if I've captured it on paper, I night night and I usually can go to sleep and, you know, get on with the next day. But it, getting those questions down on paper, writing it down, because it, there's a reason why it's popping into your head. Mm hmm. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Zicker, is there, while you have Deb and I on here as, as people living with the diseases, is there anything else that you wanted to ask of us um, and our thoughts? Is I know you're, you're teaching all the up and coming doctors is there, or, or things that maybe we can think about improving or working on in the future. So my question to you is from your experiences with telemedicine, either video or on the phone, I, I get what worked for you? And what didn't, at least receiving or from your side of the screen? For both doctors that I had, it was my foot surgeon and my rheumatologist. With both of them, I have a rapport with both of them. So we did do the idle chit chat at the beginning for like a couple minutes just to kind of catch up on how things are going. And it was seriously right after everything happened that they're like, how are you doing? And um, 
just catching up that way as far as you know, what is this new norm like for you? Are you handling it okay? Receiving the information worked out fine. My rheumatologist is very into the shared decision-making. She knows that I, I'm a dietitian by trade and bio, I double majored with dietetics and biology. So research is my passion and my I mean, we, we were in, we've gone to these, these um, conferences and my rheumatologist has actually been in the room with us and I've, I'll like go sit right behind her and I'm like, Hey, and she's like, Deb, you know? <laughs> so, you know, we've got a great rapport. I think developing that rapport is definitely important and actually checking in to see if they're understanding. I, you know, I think there's a way of, especially with video chat, you can tell if someone's faking it. You know, if they're like just nodding and saying, okay, okay. And they're like glazed over look. Watching, reading their email on the other screen or. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, Deb, how are you doing today? (laughs) As I'm like, (laughs) I'm, I'm making light of it, but. No, I think just checking in and, you know, the mental health part is a big part with being home. Luckily, I just came off and. I'm doing actually remarkably well, considering I've actually been in the same place. But again, I'm not by myself. I have my husband and I have my 21-year-old here. I know that people that do have our diseases and live by themselves, that whole mental health challenge has got to be a whole nother level, which I don't experience myself, which I'm blessed for that. But the mental health part, I think, is actually really a big part to keep tabs on as well. Mm-hmm. So my my experiences, like I said, I've only had a couple. I, I have to say, which I'm gonna I'm going to uh, mimic what was said earlier. It was really the technology was the number one issue, and it was just the differences in the methods that I had to get onto. There was on one of them the situation, uh, and in again, it wasn't my internet because I was right by the router. <laughs> I was right by, but there was there was just some some issues on their end where. Just again, it was technology. And when there's glitches, it just, I think it just causes natural anxiety for you. Right. And so I felt myself getting frustrated and I wouldn't have normally felt that way in an actual, well, I mean, maybe I would have, but I don't, we're not for <laughs> me for other reasons. Um, but that was really for me. Now I didn't, these were not this was not Dr. Kim. This was not my rheumatologist. And it was not based on any type of thing that they visually had to see. It was really based on conversation. But I did have a situation where I considered scheduling an e-health appointment with Dr. Kim because I had some, some lymph nodes in my back, in my spine that were so swollen. I mean, you could see them. They were so swollen in my neck, all the way down my spine. And I, well, I, thought they were lip nose. I don't know. And that was what I wanted to ask him. Are they lip nose? Is it, is it my spine? Cause I have spondylitis. What is this? Cause I was, my husband had to literally carry me out of bed. I couldn't get out of bed. And so I thought, how am I going to show him my back in with a, a phone or something a, like that? Like, how does that go to work? <laughs> I'm going to back yeah. up. I mean, you might get something different than the back. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. And, and so, so that, I, I thought about that and, and, but I think that that could be solved as something that, that you had said earlier, Dr. Zicker about practicing, you know, <laughs> making sure yeah. that, that you have, because that would have been, that would have been awkward, but that was my concern was how do you show? Plus you got to think of lighting and I mean, is it going to even show 
through. And your if your husband that. wasn't home to even he like, wasn't even he try. wasn't yeah, yeah that's what I'm assuming because um, otherwise if somebody else is there they could have helped you through that right. So I think for me those were the biggest challenges. What were how do you how do you really fully show your disease if you have to show it and you know you might not have the best connection or the lighting or whatever whatever it might be. But other than that, I felt like the conversation was just as if we were face to face. So none of that was an issue. And it certainly helped not to have to drive or sit in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I do sort of want to schedule for eight in the morning, though, just to, <laughs> just to, want to wake have up? like a wake up call. Go, ah, hello. <laughs> yeah. But but no. So I think that that was the biggest issues as far as far as it goes. And and I think that moving forward, some of the things that we have discussed really looking forward to thinking about how to better implement the e-health in, especially in communications and very interested in learning to what the newer doctors think that are coming on, you know, because this is, it's like another layer of communication that they're going to have to learn because I'm guessing that they're learning all of their joint counts and everything, you know, and in person. And now here you're saying, Kidding. Nope. Yeah, nope. It's going to be done over the phone or video. Right. So I think all of that is just something we definitely don't have the answers for today, but we do need to consider and think about moving forward. So, well, I think I, do you have any other questions for us, Dr. Zicker or no. Deb or no? Okay. So I, think so I only have one other, one other important question that I wanted to ask you, Dr. Zicker. So do you have sweatpants and house slippers on in the second? Got, <laughs> she looks like she's in her office, though. I got dressed for you today. It's the first day. Okay. Or all week. I, I have a real shirt on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I love it. <laughs> so okay. I that wasn't my so hair serious, for you but, guys. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, you know, I work from home often and, and uh, I will some, I met sometimes, you know, I'll be all dressed up and then I do have like pajama bottoms or sweatpants or something on. Cause I mean, Hey, if you're only from here up, then Although, it that's all you're so, going to see. I have, yeah. <laughs> I have one patient who always has fabulous shoes and we're always, comp- and I love shoes. So we're always comparing shoes. And so we had a visit on Monday and I asked her, what shoes are you wearing? She's like, oh, I just have my tennis shoes on. And she asked me, what shoes are you wearing? I was like, none right now. I took my shoes off. <laughs> yeah, See, that's, a, what, yeah. that's where I was going with that's that. That's my thought. Um, <laughs> but no, I seriously, though, I, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Deb, for, for co-hosting with me. And thank you, Dr. Zicker, for, for coming on. And we'd love to be able to continue this conversation about e-health. And as we start to it starts to evolve and we need to d- develop communications, especially being a teaching a teaching university and boy, I mean, Hey, we're right yeah. here, right here, headquartered in St. Louis. So great connection you know who to call. <laughs> to, and we can start. zoom Deb in from Milwaukee. There you go. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So, but, but, and, and for everyone who, who is listening or tuning in after the fact on this AI Arthritis Voices 360 talk show, which is our official talk show for our organization. We just want to thank you also for tuning in. And as always, Now it's time to put the conversation back on the table for all of you to pull up a seat and join the conversation. And that's how we roll here at our organization. It's all about having the voices and and the different stakeholders. Yeah, we can actually have anybody who's had these type of conversations to weigh in. Good, bad, you know, 
the, you know, the positives and again, not having to be into the healthcare situations right now and going in is a benefit for folks like us with being immune compromised. But if you have to, like you gave some suggestions earlier on about options of getting your blood work done and first appointment of the day, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I love it. I love it. Right. Right. So if you have questions or comments, then by all means, if it's on the stream that we have on Facebook, you can you can publicize your comment. If you're not comfortable doing that, you can always message us on any of our social media platforms at IFAI Arthritis, or you can just send us a message. You can email us and go on our website at AIarthritis.org and you can contact us that way as well. But other than that, I just want to thank you all for joining again and Thank everybody for pulling up a seat because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. So thank you all and signing off till next time from AR Arthritis Voices 360. Thank you. Thank you. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events. Thank you.